Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 73. One Pope, Three Emperors. This week we'll see the reverse of 1046 when there was one emperor choosing between three popes. In 1199 we have one pope given the choice between three emperors. How could that happen? Last time we looked we had Henry VI at the peak of his reign. He was king of Sicily. He had pushed through the inheritability of the imperial title and he had de facto encircled the Pope. But now, just two years later, the picture is reversed. There's a reason the Wheel of Fortune is one of the favourite subjects of high medieval painting. Now, before we start, just a reminder. The History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Tim, Brennan and Christopher who have already signed up. Now, last week's episode closed with the end of the negotiations between Emperor Henry VI and Pope Celestine III. Subject of the intended agreement was nothing less than the resolution of all existing conflicts between the papacy and the empire. Henry VI had put everything and the kitchen sink on the table. He had offered financial freedom for the papacy, a settlement for the lands of Matilda, a crusade, vassalage for the kingdom of Sicily, and most bewildering of all, vassalage for the whole of the empire. And the ancient Pope Celestine III, now in his 90s, refused. He refused because an empire that held both northern Italy, including Tuscany, and the southern Italian kingdoms of Sicily would have been the end of papal independence. So, there was no possible compromise to be had. The Pope is not going to accept Henry VI as King of Sicily. Full stop. Henry left Rome frustrated but determined not to give up. He had to perform a full 180-degree shift in policy. The crusade that he had worked on for so long that he had sacrificed the inheritable monarchy for and that he thought would be the lever to force the papacy into recognition of his kingship was now irrelevant. The Pope would not make him king of Sicily, even if he brings him Jerusalem on a silver platter. That does not mean he would stop the crusade, but he would probably not join it. His top priority is now to protect the reign in Sicily. As soon as the papal refusal of Henry's offer was public, it would encourage more opposition and rebellion, and that he needed to nip in the bud. To get on the front foot, he called an assembly of the southern Italian barons to Capua. There the nobles and the cities were to show their charters and documents for inspection. All rights and privileges were put under scrutiny. Given how thin on the ground written documentation was at the time, any confirmation of their possession was effectively dependent on their display of loyalty. And to drive his point home, he also staged a show trial of Richard of Acera, the defender of Naples in 1192. Richard had not only defied the emperor through his skillful defence of Naples, but he was accused of having committed atrocities. When the ancient city of Capua had fallen into his hands after Henry's withdrawal in 1192, Richard, so has he been accused, had its German garrison massacred. And as soon as Henry had taken control of the kingdom, he had issued a search warrant for Richard of Isera. Richard had fled, but was betrayed by a monk who handed him over to one of Henry VI's knights. In this elaborate show trial, Richard of Isera was, 
condemned to death for high treason. No surprise there. The emperor had him drawn behind a horse through the streets of Capua, then hanged from the gallows by his feet, where he remained alive for two days, before the court jester put an end to his suffering. The lack of legitimacy caused by the papal refusal to recognize Henry as king had to be made up for by terror. Henry, satisfied with his handiwork, proceeded to Puglia to inspect progress of the crusade. The most senior of the imperial princes, Conrad, Archbishop of Mainz, was leading the first contingent of 30 ships that left Bari in March 1197. Contingents from Bavaria and Austria were on their way through Italy, looking to take ship from Messina or Bari. The same goes for the large number of mercenaries the emperor had hired. One detachment, led by the Duke Henry of Brabant, had taken ship in the Low Countries and was sailing along the Atlantic coast towards Sicily, making brief stopovers to help the Portuguese in their expansion southwards. It was all a little bit uncoordinated and undisciplined, leaving the population of his new kingdoms fearing rather than cheering the crusaders. In this atmosphere of unrest and disapproval, Henry scheduled a rerun of the assembly in Capua, this time for the Sicilian nobles. They too were asked to present their charters for inspection, leading to a redistribution of land and positions from unreliable candidates to imperial loyalists. Should not forget that Henry VI had brought a not insignificant number of his own ministeriales and aristocratic followers to this new land, and these men were expected to be rewarded with their own territories. Men like Markwart of Anweiler, Konrad von Querfurt and Heinrich von Calden took all the leading roles in the kingdom. The Sicilian-slash-Norman aristocrats realized that their days as the elite in the land was numbered, unless they acted now. So they arranged a conspiracy that involved not just the nobles, but also many cities and the leaders of the large Muslim and Greek communities. It seems they've even involved the Pope into their plans. At least we're told that old Celestine warned some German crusaders from travelling further south. The plan was to kill Henry during a hunting trip and simultaneously take out all his key advisers. The rebels had assembled a small number of armoured knights for that purpose, they may have even already elected a new king, the Lord of Castro Giovanni, who was variously known as Jordan Lipin or William the Monk. This new king was to marry Constance, and if need be by force, and thereby become the legitimate ruler of Sicily. The plot failed literally at the very last minute. Henry VI had already set out for his hunting expedition, which was where the conspirators planned to strike. Outside town, one of his spies rode up to him, and told him not just about the extensive preparations of the conspirators, but also about the armed men following him into the woods. Henry just about managed to get back behind the walls of Messina. Marquardt of Anweiler and the Marshal Heinrich of Calden mustered some of the mercenaries and crusaders who had gathered in Messina and rode out to meet the insurgents. At a bloody battle below Mount Etna, the last of the Sicilian Normans were utterly routed. The survivors fled to their castle at Castro Giovanni. Imperial troops surrounded the castle. When Henry arrived with even more troops from Palermo, the garrison surrendered. The leaders of the rebellion were caught alive, including their potential king. Henry's justice was even more cruel than at Capua. They were all condemned to death. Some were hanged, others burned, drowned or sawn in half. The pretender was given the most brutal death. He had a crown fixed to his head with iron nails 
And Henry said to him, Now you have this crown you have so badly craved. I do not envy you for it. Enjoy this you so desired. Oh, the irony of it. There is one man in this narrative who craved the crown of Sicily above and beyond any other thing. It is Henry VI. These events are often cited as proof that Henry was a cruel and vicious ruler, and they are, no doubt, brutal punishments. But they were driven not by excessive brutality beyond the standards of his time, but out of a position of weakness. Thanks to the papal refusal to legitimise Henry and Constance as the rulers of Sicily, they had to change approach. When Henry still hoped for papal recognition, he was magnanimous, and he did not condemn his opponents to death, let alone a humiliating and painful death. But now, his only chance of staying on the throne was by taking away his opponent's resources and establishing an atmosphere of fear and suppression. Like many a usurper before him, he resorted to the display of exaggerated brutality to cow the opposition. All this took place in May. Over the next few months, more and more crusaders gathered in the harbours of Sicily until, on September 1st, 1197, order was given for the 250 ships to set sail for the Holy Land. Meanwhile, Henry's brother Philip had prematurely ended his honeymoon and was on his way to Folignano to pick up little Frederick, by now elected King of the Romans, to take him to Aachen for his coronation. Henry's position was fairly stable, not quite as stable as he wanted it, but stable. Sicily was cowering in fear before its ruthless new ruler and the imperial princes north of the Alps, finally elected his son to be king, and his coronation was not far away. But then, suddenly he felt weak. A fever that had troubled him since the siege of Naples in 1192 had come back with a vengeance, but was now accompanied by terrible bouts of diarrhoea. He was brought to Messina, and the empress was called to expect the worse. But on September 25th he seemed to recover, and he had ordered his imminent departure for Palermo. Most of the imperial train was already packed up and en route to the capital when the emperor suddenly relapsed. On September 28th, after confession and the last rites, Emperor Henry VI died in the presence of just his wife and a few close advisers. How is this possible? Henry VI was just 32 years old, much younger at his death than even Henry V, whose unexpected and early death ended the Salian dynasty. Only Otto III had died younger, at just 22 years of age, but then Otto III had been fasting himself to death ever since he was a teenager. Talk of poison spread. Suspicion fell on his wife, Constance. The couple had spent most of the last few years apart, as Constance was first confined with her precious only child, and then managed Sicily, and Henry was up in Germany and Rome. As is common with medieval rulers, we know very little about the emotional side of their relationship. Those who argue that Constance may have wanted Henry out of the way point to the fact that Henry had systematically replaced Sicilian Normans with German knights. And many of these Sicilian Normans were Constance's cousins, respected courtiers, admirals and generals at the court of her father and her nephew. It may be that Constance shared their resentment at the takeover by the Unweilers and Caldens from the north. But politically, it's harder to see how Constance would benefit from Henry VI's death. The death of the emperor threw Sicily into turmoil. The official legitimate heir was the little Frederick. But Frederick was not even in Sicily. He was in Folignano, and for all Constance knew, 
could already be on his way to his coronation as King of the Romans. And one thing is clear. Once Frederick was crowned as future emperor, the Pope would not allow him to become King of Sicily. And without papal permission, a three-year-old and an aging empress would not hang on to the crown for long. Hence for Constance to seek her husband's death would only make sense if a. she knew that Frederick was still in Folignano and Philip would not get to him in time, b. that she had an agreement with the papacy that Frederick could become king of Sicily in exchange for renouncing the rights to the empire, and most crucially c. that Constance believed that her husband's policy to hold on to Sicily and the empire at the same time was doomed. And that is where the theory falls down. Yes, Henry was not popular in Sicily, but his regime was not doomed by any stretch of the imagination. That being said, Constance's next steps are exactly what I lined out above. Upon the Empress' death, she sends envoys to bring Frederick down to Sicily as fast as humanly possible. At the same time, she opens negotiations with Pope Celestine III. She promises effectively Frederick's renunciation of the imperial crown, makes the Pope the little boy's guardian, throws out all the German courtiers and replaces them with Sicilians. With that, she can have little Frederick crowned King of Sicily in 1198. This is where we'll have to leave the two of them for the next couple of episodes. No worries, we'll get back to the beautiful south soon. Taking Frederick to Sicily and dropping opposition to the papacy surely helps Constance and Frederick cling on to the Kingdom of Sicily, but it creates a huge problem for Henry's younger brother Philip, by now Duke of Swabia, for the Hohenstaufen position in Germany as a whole, and for the Empire. I mentioned earlier that Philip was on his way down to Foligniano to pick up young Frederick to take him to his coronation in Aachen. But when he got there, he's told that his mother had already taken him down to Palermo. I guess medieval people did not say, oh shit, but whatever the equivalent of oh shit is in early High German, that is what Philip must have said when he was shown the empty crib at the home of the Duke of Spoleto. The Empire needs an Emperor, and the elected future Emperor is Little Frederick. Philip had spent the last years making exactly that happen. Having a child Emperor is already a bit of an anomaly in an elective monarchy, but a child Emperor that isn't even here, that is complexity cubed. Philip is wrecking his brain on his way back to Germany how to solve the issue. Constance is sure will not hand over Frederick, because that would cause the same problem in Sicily that they have in the Empire. The new king is a child, and a child that isn't even here. So, no, there is little chance that Frederick will come to Germany before he has reached adulthood. But what shall we do in the meantime? A regency council headed by himself, Philip, and some of the loyal imperial princes? Or shall a new king be elected either as a permanent ruler or to rule until Frederick comes back? How and who should decide that? In the 12th century, the answer to that question is increasingly to let the Pope decide. Ever since the investiture controversy had broken the supremacy of the emperors over the other rulers in Europe, disputes over difficult questions, like the succession to the throne, were brought to the courts of the Church. And thanks to the expanding network of papal legates, the Church could provide dispute resolution quickly and locally. Questions as fundamental as the one brought about by the death of Henry VI should hence be decided by the Church and most specifically by the Pope. But the papacy was unable to act. 
Pope Celestine had died at the start of the year 1198 at the ripe old age of 92. His successor, Innocent III, would become the most important Pope of the Middle Ages. But it took him a few weeks to get into gear, weeks during which no decision could be made. Into that vacuum steps Adolf, Archbishop of Cologne. He is at this point the most senior bishop present in Germany and hence in charge of imperial elections. Konrad, Archbishop of Mainz, whose job that normally is, is down in the Holy Land and so are many other imperial princes. Adolf had only reluctantly accepted the election of young Frederick, but now, as circumstances had changed, he acts as if that had never happened. He writes to the imperial princes, including the newest of those vassals, Richard the Lionheart, and he invites him to come down for the election. Richard politely declines. But the former prisoner on the Trefelds and Imperial ATM realizes that this is a great opportunity to get back at his dead tormentor. As a vassal and prince, he can make a suggestion for the election. And that suggestion was to elect Otto, Count of Poitou, Duke of Aquitaine. Otto who? Otto was born around 1177, so he was pretty much the same age as Philip of Swabia. His father was Henry the Lion, known to you all and friend of the podcast. His mother was Matilda, daughter of King Henry II of England and hence sister of Richard the Lionheart. The reason we have not heard anything about Otto is simple. He grew up at the English court. His father was exiled to England in 1181 and that's when Otto came here aged six and stayed, even after his father had returned to Germany. King Richard was exceedingly fond of his nephew, who had little prospects in Germany, being the younger son of a family that insisted on the salient law for inheritance. Richard first tried to make him the Earl of York, though the locals rejected him. But he was more successful in appointing him Count of Poitou in France, a title Richard himself had used before. As Count of Poitou, Otto was also the acting Duke of Aquitaine, that great territory in southwest France that had come into the Angevin family through the marriage of Eleanor and Henry II. Otto was now in one of the top positions of the Angevin Empire. If Henry VI had not died in 1197, Otto would have clearly played a significant role in English politics, and you would probably have heard of him. But he was not just one of Richard's favourite nephews, he was also a potential heir to his throne. Richard was 36 at the time, and given the state of his personal inclinations and the relationship with his wife, he was likely to remain childless. And as we've been told by Errol Flynn, John Derrick, Russell Crowe, Carrie Alvis, Kevin Costner, Sean Connery, and four more, his brother John, later to be called John Lackland, was not the right man for the job. Or at least, that is what Richard thought after John had offered vast amounts of money to Henry VI to prolong Richard's stay in Germany. The other potential heir was Arthur of Brittany, the son of Godfrey, which is another brother of Richard's and John's. Arthur had technically a better claim than John Lackland, since Godfrey had been older than John. But Arthur was living at the court of Philippe Auguste of France, Richard's arch-enemy, and that disqualified him. So Otto was therefore technically number three to succeed in as far as Richard was concerned, 
the number one. Richard also knew that if he were to appoint Otto as his successor, a civil war was almost unavoidable. Henry VI's death and the disappearance of little Frederick down south was an absolute godsend for Richard the Lionheart. He wrote back to Adolf of Cologne that, yeah, Otto's on his way and you should get everything ready for the election and coronation. Adolf may have been in tacit opposition to the Hohenstaufen for a while, so a non-Hohenstaufen candidate was something he liked. But a wealth? The prospect of a wealth king and emperor was not exactly what an Archbishop of Cologne could get excited about. Cologne had been one of the great beneficiaries of the fall of Henry the Lion, Otto's father. When Henry the Lion lost his duchies of Saxony and Bavaria, Saxony was split in two, and one, Westphalia, had gone to Cologne, the others, still called Saxony, had gone to Bernard of Anhalt, and Bavaria had gone to the Wittelsbach. It could not be in the interest to get a son of Henry the Lion on the throne for any of those. But money talks, and Richard of England had money. Lots of money. We are entering the high Middle Ages and taxation is becoming a thing. England always had a coherent enough structure to force through taxation, and the King of France was establishing the same in his territories. The Empire, however, had fallen behind. Yes, the territory lords and the independent cities of northern Italy, and actually also the ones in Germany, were building taxation infrastructure. But the Empire as a whole had no such capabilities. Henry VI had tax income from Sicily, but nothing from the Empire. Sir Richard has the money, and he will use the money, to buy his beloved nephew a crown, the crown of the Empire, no less. And another force pushed for the candidacy of Otto, one that appears for the first time on the imperial stage, the merchants, more specifically the merchants of Cologne. Cologne was the centre of trade between England and Germany and down the Rhine into Italy. The Cologne merchants were keen on a close alliance between the Empire and England, and that meant they supported Otto. With Adolf on board, one crucial element of the process to become the anointed king was in place. Otto had the correct archbishop for the coronation. And since the archbishop of Mainz was down in the Holy Land, Adolf was also in charge of the imperial duties of his colleague upriver, i.e. he was the correct archbishop for organizing the election. The only thing that was missing were the imperial regalia. Those were in the castle of the Trefelds, firmly in the hands of the Hohenstaufen. Talking about the Hohenstaufen, where is Philip, Duke of Swabia and currently leader of the clan? Well, he'd rushed back to Germany after his failure to bring young Frederick to Germany, and he heard all that chatter about an English wealthish candidate for the imperial crown. What is he to do? Should he try to be elected himself and be king in his own right, stepping over the rights of his nephew? Or shall he act as his nephew's guardian and representative? How would that work? Would the imperial vassals recognize the representative of a four-year-old who wasn't even baptized, let alone crowned? as their liege lord. We do not know what Philip's actual motives were, but he declared his willingness to accept an election as king, and so on March 8th, 1198, Philip was elected king of the Romans and future emperor by an impressive number of imperial princes. They were led by the winners of the fall of Henry the Lion, the dukes Bernard of Saxony and Ludwig of Bavaria and also included the Archbishop of Magdeburg and the Bishops of Bamberg, Eichstätt, Merseburg and Worms. But it did not have any of the most senior Archbishops, 
those of Cologne, Mainz and Trier on his roster. The election also took place in Mühlhausen in Thuringia, not exactly on Frankish soil, as was the custom. Now as soon as Philip was elected, a call went out to Otto to come down to Germany, where he arrived in June. Otto's allies besieged and entered Aachen on the 12th of July 1198, where he was crowned by the correct archbishop, in the correct place, but with replicas of the actual imperial regalia. Now Philip had hesitated to proceed to his own coronation, in part because he hoped he may still be able to sway the Archbishop of Cologne to join his side, and also because he wanted to have his nephew's prior permission for this irrevocable step. The permission from Frederick was also important because the German crusaders were now returning from the Holy Land. As I said, it's all a bit chaotic, a lot more chaotic than a normal succession. Now Henry's crusade has simply ended with his death. As soon as the crusaders had heard of the demise of the emperor, they knew that their home would be in turmoil. Long gone were the days when the lands and possessions of a crusader were sacrosanct whilst he was down freeing Jerusalem. Everybody rushed home as fast as they could to protect or even expand their territory in the now inevitable rejigging of the cards. And these crusaders had sworn an oath to the succession rights of little Frederick, so in order to transfer their loyalty to him, Philip needed the little boy's consent. That came through in July and another obstacle was also cleared. In 1198, Philip had still been under excommunication. The excommunication is by now so common, I barely mention them anymore. Philip had picked up the papal wrath when his brother had made him Duke of Tuscany. In this role, Philip had pushed the imperial prerogatives against papal resistance, and that was enough to get him excommunicated. As I said, the actual Middle Ages are gradually coming to an end, being replaced by a more cynical, everyone-for-himself attitude where the papacy will use its moral superiority in the pursuit of purely temporal political objectives. This political excommunication was lifted by the papal legate so that coronation could take place in Mainz on September 8th, 1198. Mainz was not Aachen, but had at least historically been a place of coronation. Philip also had the correct imperial regalia, which we know are important to confer legitimacy. But he did not have the correct archbishop. In fact, no German or any other archbishop was willing to perform this coronation in the see of the absent Archbishop of Mainz. Philip's party had to resort to the rather obscure Bishop of Tarentaise in Burgundy, who apparently owed Philip's brother, the Count of Burgundy, big time. There we are. It's the end of 1198. We have three elected kings of the Romans. There is a child, Frederick, four years old and elected by most of the princes, but far away and not yet crowned. Then there is Otto, counted as Otto IV, who could rely on English money and the bishop and city of Cologne. And finally, Philip, usually not given a numeral, though he sometimes called himself Philip II, counting the emperor Philip the Arab in the 3rd century as his predecessor. He had the strongest position amongst the territorial lord, counting the dukes of Saxony and Bavaria in his camp, plus his own domain as Duke of Swabia. And then, we have the throng of undecided princes, many just on their way back from the crusade. Henry, the Count Palatinate, Bernard von Seringen, the archbishops of Mainz and Trier, just to name a few. For the good of Christendom, the Pope should decide this election and bring peace to the Empire. That is what he is for. 
and the new Pope Innocent III will decide it along of what is fair and what is best for the Empire. Sorry, just kidding. He will certainly not do that. He will make his decision on the basis of what is best for the political objectives of the papacy, and he will take his decision only two years after the civil war had gone into full swing. Now his reasoning in 1200-1201 boils down to the following. Frederick should not have been elected when he was just two years old since Christendom requires a capable and proactive emperor, something a small child could not be, and particularly not one that hasn't even been baptized. As for Philip of Swabia, he argues that he's also unsuitable, because at the time of the election and the coronation, he was still excommunicated. The lifting of the ban by the papal legate was invalid, because Philip was a descendant of a, and I quote here, a race of persecutors of the church who, like his father and his brother, had shown scant regards for the rights of the papacy. Well, well. Otto, he argues, may not have had a lot of votes, but, you know, that doesn't really matter because he's a descendant of the kings of England and the House of Wealth, both of which are renowned for their fealty to the mother church, something he had so aptly displayed himself. This assessment will come back to bite his holiness in his unholiness. But before that, we have to go through ten years of civil war, political manoeuvring and hollowing out of the royal rights, ending in murder most foul. I will hope you will join us again. Before I go, let me thank all of you who are supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have so kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It is thanks to you that this show does not have to do advertising. And if Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the history of the Germans, it's more likely to be seen by others, hence bring in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter, at Germans History, and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes. 